Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. So what we found is that households with lower incomes allocate a much bigger share of their budget to energy and food costs. It is not sustainable to keep holding the price of energy artificially low. You've had global shipping companies which move goods all around the world anything from your your sofa to your to your iphone it currently costs seventeen thousand dollars so that's 10 times more than what companies would have paid to ship materials a year ago just go and speak to your providers don't bury your head in the sand they've got teams set up they want to help you As the cost of living continues to rise, in January, an estimated 2.5 million people missed payments. And in this episode, along with witch expert Gareth Shaw, we'll be discussing who's being hit the hardest and the reasons behind prices going up around the world. We'll be looking at what inflation means for you and bringing you up to speed with today's energy price cap announcement, including what it could mean for your bills. Plus, we have advice on what to do if you're struggling as we question whether the government and companies are doing enough to help. We are wit. It's impossible to escape the current cost of living crisis. Prices are rising, bills are stacking up and households are increasingly feeling the squeeze. We're recording this on Thursday and the regulator Ofgem has just announced the energy price cap will rise by £693 in England, Wales and Scotland from April. It's an enormous 54% increase and it will cause bills for the average customer to rise to £1,971 a year. Gareth, while we've all been expecting a sharp increase this spring it's a shocking reality hearing it today isn't it it is isn't it 54 percent a 693 pound increase on the average bill it's absolutely staggering i think it's worth clarifying who this price cap actually applies to and and why it's happening Mm -hmm. so the price cap is a is a limit a, a ceiling on the price per unit of um, gas and electricity for customers that are on the default tariff. This is a tariff that's not for a fixed period that you haven't actively switched to. It means that you're on it because you haven't done anything about finding a new deal. This will affect people whose supplier has left the market and they've joined a new supplier. They'll be immediately put onto the default tariff Mm. for whom this price cap applies. That is a significant number of people. It's 22 million people who are on the um, default tariff. And they are the ones, and some of whom, you know, 
will really, really struggle to meet the cost of this increase. They are the ones who are going to bear the brunt of it. But gradually, more and more people will be confronted by this because the open market for energy tariffs is hardly open. There are no fixed deals out there that are cheaper than the price cap. And so even if you wanted to switch, you'd be paying more money than the price cap that's out there. So if you're on a fixed deal at the moment and it's expiring in the next few weeks or months, at the moment, and it depends on who you're with and whether or not there are any deals for existing customers, but generally it kind of makes sense to just go on to the default tariff because that's the cheapest price you're going to find, even at that astronomical £1,971 for the average customer. Well, let's take a look at the help that is coming. Now, shortly after Ofgem's announcement, Chancellor Rishi Sunak took to his feet in the House of Commons. Mr Speaker, the price cap has meant that the impact of soaring gas prices has so far fallen predominantly on energy companies, so much so that some suppliers who couldn't afford to meet those extra costs have gone out of business as a result. It is not sustainable to keep holding the price of energy artificially low. For me to stand here and pretend we don't have to adjust to paying higher prices would be wrong and dishonest. But what we can do is take the sting out of a significant price shock for millions of families by making sure the increase in prices is smaller initially and spread over a longer period. Now, Gareth, the Chancellor has announced some measures to help people affected by the rise. What support will be out there for customers? Yeah, the government really had no choice, did it, to to Mm. intervene? Because, I mean, let's just repeat it again. A £693 increase uh, in people's energy bills, that's going to cause serious hardship for people. So you're right, they, they have come up with some measures. The first is a £200 rebate on bills. Now, that will be paid to people in October. So it's not immediate help, but it is it's quite a significant amount of money. You know, a, a lot of people were suggesting that the government should cut VAT on energy bills. That would have saved £100. This is actually double that amount. It will go an awful long way to covering you know, a 54% increase in um, energy bills. That said, if for high users, it's it's just a drop in the ocean. You know, if you're spending uh, two and a half, three grand on your Mm. energy bills, 200 pounds isn't necessarily going to help. It's also a loan. (laughs) So this is not a grant. It will be paid back over a five-year period, £40 a year, coming out of people's bills. And so, you know, that is something to factor in. What I'm scratching my head over, though, here, Lucia, is what if this happens again? And what Mm. if the government decides to intervene the same way? Are we looking at kind of getting perpetual loans from energy Mm. companies and then paying them back forever through our bills is yet that yet another thing that we have to pay for through our bills um but look it will provide some relief um it's just that that repayment 
if if we have these kinds of price rises not just later on in the year but next year or even the year after that 40 pounds is going to is going to create a hardship for people they're going to have to pay that back they might not be able to so that's the 200 pound rebate the second thing is council tax rebate as well this will be paid in april so there will be some immediate relief there it's 150 back for people who live in properties uh, property bans A to D. And I guess the, the quickest and simplest way to describe the banning is the like, bigger and more expensive your property, the lower down in the alphabet you're going to be. Right. So this is quite targeted at um, people and it affects an awful lot of people. There are 20 million ha- households who sit in bans A to D. Um, and, it, you know, it really does target, I guess, lower um, lower income households. You know, it's not perfect, but it, it'll do. And what I should say is this, I'm talking about England here. There are similar funds for the rest of the UK. There are also um, going to be funds given to local councils for people that might not qualify for whatever reason to get the £150 back off uh, off of council tax. Will that be automatic, Gareth? That will be automatic. That will be an automatic rebate. So yeah, you look, that's 350 quid. So it's kind of halving the average increase, but it's not all in one go. So people are going to feel some pain um, in April. There's also going to be some changes to the warm homes discount that's being increased by £10. The net of eligibility for that, Christ, that was a bit of jargon. The people who could qualify for that um, is going to be expanded, although we're waiting for some more detail on that. So we don't know exactly what that means. But put together, there are a package of measures there that the government thinks is sufficient to help people through this crisis. Now, at which we've been doing a huge piece of research into the seriousness of the rising cost of living. And the latest figures reveal an estimated 2.5 million UK households missed payments in January, which is a significant increase on the month before of 1.7 million. Let's start by hearing from which data analysis, Sophie Beasley, to find out more. So our team has been carrying out quite a range of research to just assess how this cost of living crisis is actually impacting on people across the UK. So there are a couple of strands to that and a major part is our consumer insight tracker. This is a monthly survey with around 2000 people across the UK. And the sample of that is designed to reflect the UK population in terms of age, gender, location and other factors. So alongside this, we did some analysis of data from the Office for National Statistics on inflation and household spending. And that's helped us really understand how different groups of people are affected by the price rises that we're seeing at the moment. So we've consistently seen in our Consumer Insight Tracker survey that those on lower incomes and people on social security payments are more likely to be experiencing financial difficulty and are more likely to be really badly impacted when things happen in the economy like this crisis. So mispayment rates were much higher among those groups, according to our survey data. But our separate analysis of ONS data allowed us to really look into this effect on different groups in a more robust way. So though we know that overall inflation is expected to rise sharply in 2022, that overall figure really doesn't show us the unequal impact that will be felt among different groups of consumers. So what we found is that households with lower incomes allocate a much bigger share of their budget to energy and food costs. 
And we know that there are very high price rises expected for energy and food prices also are expected to rise much more than we've seen in the past. Our analysis predicts that by April, energy and food alone is expected to make up nearly a third of spending for households with the lowest income. So a really big chunk, and that compares to just 15% for the richest households. So we see a really huge difference there. We've already mentioned rising energy prices, and they are just one of the reasons for the recent spike in inflation. We've talked about inflation a lot on the podcast recently, and it's currently at 5.4%. Now, this is based on a figure given from the Office for National Statistics, and we'll talk a bit later about whether the number is actually a fair representation of what households are really experiencing. But the basket of goods and services it monitors to come up with the inflation percentage, anything from a car to, I think the example... Um, one of our regulars, Jenny Ross, often gives us leggings, all sorts of stuff, really, that's supposed to represent what we spend our money on. Well, if we zoom out for a minute, what's behind all of the price increases of these very different items and services? It's, as ever, complicated and a really mm-hmm. mixed picture. So let's start with what we've already been talking about energy. Oil prices have boomed since the beginning of the pandemic. They're at a seven-year high because demand has rocketed. That means that petrol prices are high. Um, The price of gas has shot up because of huge global demand. There are also other factors like a really cold winter in um, Europe uh, last year, which um, kind of depleted gas reserves. We've got good shortages as well because of the boom in consumer spending during the lockdowns around the world. Companies and have not been able to cope with the demand. You know, that's led to a shortage of raw material to then go and manufacture goods. So that, that's been an issue as well. Um, the cost of shipping. I mean, that, that's often cited as uh, one of the um, driving factors in inflation. Again, this has been driven by a surge in demand after the pandemic. It's costing a lot more money to get stuff in our shops and therefore the shops have to put the prices up because um, it's costing them more money to get it in. Uh, And then, of course, there's I don't think we've discussed this on the podcast, but the great resignation, you know, people have either left the workforce, they've changed jobs. You know, the, the pandemic has had a profound effect on people's perceptions of what work is and also the opportunities that are out there for them. I mean, there's staff shortages right the way across the world. And so what do businesses do in order to keep people or attract people? They put up salaries and that salary inflation is driving inflation in other areas as well. We've also been speaking with BBC journalist Beth Timmins about this, and here she is with more detail on how climate change and shipping costs have played a role to drive up global prices. Shipping costs has been a really important factor um, and quite shocking in terms of the statistics I've been looking at. So you've had global shipping companies which move goods all around the world who've been really overwhelmed by a surging demand after the pandemic, and this has led to these transport bottlenecks, which has meant One of the stats that I found most shocking was that a single 40-foot container from Asia to Europe, which could be transporting anything from your your sofa to your your iPhone, it currently costs $17,000, so that's £12,480, which is 10 times more than what companies would have paid to ship materials a year ago when it was just $1,500 or 
£1,101. So an often overlooked factor in inflation and the rising costs around the world is extreme weather. So global oil supplies took a hit from hurricanes Ida and Nicholas, which passed through the Gulf of Mexico and damaged US oil infrastructure, which is part of the reason that oil jumped up in prices as well there. And also problems meeting the demand for microchips, which are used in everything from your phones to your televisions to your cars as well. Those problems were worsened after a really fierce winter storm closed major factories in Texas last year. And the cost of coffee has also jumped after Brazil, which is the world's largest coffee producer, had a poor harvest following its most severe drought in almost a century. We are which. Now, on the Bank of England's website, it says they expect inflation to rise to about 6% in spring this year, then to come down in the second half of the year and 2023, back towards 2%. Now, while it doesn't help people feeling the squeeze now, Gareth, do you think this is likely? And we should also mention here the breaking news that the Bank of England will be raising interest rates. And this was also announced today, up to 0.5% from 0.25%. Can you explain how this is related to inflation? Interest rates and inflation go hand in hand. They have a, an inverse relationship and it's and controlling interest rates to manage inflation is the most powerful weapon that um, a central bank like the Bank of England has. The thinking goes that if you increase interest rates, um, it becomes more expensive to borrow for individuals, for businesses, because it's more expensive for them to borrow money, to then invest in, say, equipment, they don't do it. And therefore, the demand for those kinds of things falls, and therefore, the prices fall with demand, thus reducing inflation. Of course, if inflation is super low and the bank wants to stimulate demand, um, then it might want to cut interest rates. So it's cheaper to borrow. It's cheaper for businesses to you know, invest in the things that they need um, to be more successful. That stimulates demand and economic growth. Um, and you know, with that, what you then see is inflation. We've seen that happen because during the pandemic, we had record low interest rates, you know, a, a level we'd we'd never seen 0.1%. That was necessary to stave off, you know, a complete economic crisis as the whole country shut down. But the knock on effect of those record low interest rates were inflationary pressures creeping up and now crescendoing, along with these other external factors like the stratospheric rise in energy prices you know that has been the the low interest rates have been a driver in inflation creeping up so now it's time to kind of turn things the other way and start using increasing interest rates to try and get inflation under control can we address um, the parallels being drawn between the rising inflation of today and what happened back in the 1970s when it reached more than 10%? Because some of the headlines are obviously trying to, to scare the life out of us. So is there any truth in them? How do the factors of the 70s rise compared to ones influencing today's? In the 1970s, we had something called stagflation, which is not only high inflation, but low or slow economic growth. And put together, 
that can have a, a really bad impact on our finances, um, on the economy as a whole. Um, and in the 70s, stagflation was just a, a really, really bad financial time f- f- for everybody. Back then, our kind of the view of what good economic growth looked like was quite different from today. The Bank of England has an inflation target of 2%, but before stag- the stagflation of the 70s, they kind of the, the view was that high inflation was not a problem, it, that it was an indicator of a growing economy, you know, and, and that meant there were businesses would hire more people, there would be more stuff out there to kind of meet rising demand. So inflation wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But then in the 70s, there were a whole suite of things that happened. There was a a massive oil crisis that caused like embargoes right the way around the world. And it just kind of crippled countries' economies. They had to ration oil. Inflation peaked at 12.9% in March 1974. Unemployment went with it. And that's because economic growth really slowed down along with the high prices. And that's after that point, that's when we started setting targets for inflation. We're not at that stage, I don't think. We still have economic growth. I wouldn't call it decent economic growth, but we do have economic growth. But there are a lot of fears that this could happen. So what will the rise in inflation mean for you? Well, generally speaking, this depends on how inflation changes relative to your income. As one consumer says in our report, everything has gone up in price. Food, petrol, gas and electric have gone up so much, but my wages haven't. And it's a hard truth many will be facing. And there's more to add to the mix here. National insurance will be rising by 1.25% in April. Gareth, is now really the right time for tax to be going up? on top of everything else? It's a really good question, Lucia. I have my personal opinion on it, but this is all about the balance of priorities, right? There is a purpose for raising national insurance. It's being it's designed to pay for the NHS to clear mm-hmm. a backlog that has been created by the pandemic and also to fix a huge systemic issue that we have in this country about how to pay for later life care. It is a, an issue that has bedeviled successive governments for decades and decades. And this government has decided that they're going to try and tackle it once and for all. We talked about this just last week, you know, that there is a there is a huge issue to solve with funding care. and. There are lots of things that were in the government's gift to do. They could have done a U-turn on national insurance, but on the balance of their priorities, they have decided to go ahead with that because they think the purpose of it is too important to delay. Is there also the argument here that the rise in national insurance is an unfair one? As many types of income will be unaffected, like rent and dividends, say. Plus, when earners hit 50k, the rate or percentage they pay on anything over that amount reduces significantly, doesn't it? Is that right? National insurance is an odd one. It it is an odd one. And I think... The only reason why we're talking about national insurance in this context is because the government needed a mechanism to quickly raise this money. 
in future, this is going to become a levy. It's not going to be national insurance. So it will be a levy on your earnings. And that means that you know, at the moment, one of the big benefits of reaching retirement age is that you stop paying national insurance. Mm-hmm. In the future, if you're still working and you're past retirement age, you will pay this 1.25% levy. You won't pay any national insurance. It will be a 1.25% health and social care levy, irrespective of your age. Mm-hmm. There is an argument to be had here about how this 1.25% national insurance increase levy, you know, it will become a levy rather than an NI increase, is being applied. Who are the users of later life care services and, you know, a good chunk of NHS resource? It's older people. They're in poorer health. They they need health care, right? But But this levy will not be paid by people who are no longer working. So you're, it, it won't come out of your pension. If you have dividends, you mentioned dividends earlier. If you earn dividends, your dividend rate is rate of tax on dividends is being increased. So it will apply if you've got investment income effectively. But if you're if you retire with a massive pension and that's the only income that you've got, you're not making that additional contribution that all of the workers are. And I think for those that argue that this is unfair, it's younger people who are being made to pay this levy for you know services they're not going to be using for an awful long time that's quite a self-centered view i guess it might be that they're funding it for their grandmother or their parents and that's quite altruistic um but but yeah i mean there's always challenges with fairness in this kind of stuff well, let's take a look now at how benefits will change with inflation. Of the people we spoke to for our research, 28% of those on universal credit said they had missed a payment in January. And as Jack Leslie from the Resolution Foundation tells us, benefits may continue to lag behind inflation even when they rise in spring. People on universal income are, are, are particularly affected right now because of how uh, the government uh, uprates benefits each year. So they take the inflation rate as it is in September, and then they use that to increase benefits the following April in order to to keep uh, a match between the cost of living and benefits. The problem this year is that inflation was much lower in September. And by the time we get to April, households are going to be particularly hard, hard hit because of the increase in the energy uh, price cap. So energy bills are going to go up by probably around 50% for lots of these people at the same time as benefits aren't going to go up by anywhere near the same amount. So in line with September's inflation, benefits are set to rise by 3.1% in April. But as we've already heard, the Bank of England predicts inflation will be 6% by then. Gareth, is the government likely to change its current plans? There was a sort of celebration that they were increasing by so much. You're right, it's linked to September's level of inflation. But actually, the reality is that's not going to be adequate to keep up with rising prices. I think the government's argument here is that this is kind of much like when it dropped the earnings link. You know, the earnings went up by 5.4% and the government did not increase um, the state pension under the triple lock by earnings because it was an anomalous year. The, The economy was opening up. And it would actually make the state pension, which is a huge expense for the government, 
unaffordable. And and that's, I guess, the same approach here with inflation. Is this just a kind of one-off event? The Bank of England hopes that, yes, inflation is going to spike for all of the factors that we've been talking about in today's podcast, but then it's going to start going down again into 2023, back down to normal levels. But what kind of cost burden would that create to increase benefits? You know, and the welfare state is massive, it's a massive cost to the taxpayer by such a significant amount for relatively short-term um, uh, inflation impact. And so it's that kind of longer-term view. And, and of course, that burden then falls on younger people who have to, I mean, we're talking, there, there are, there's talk about increasing state pension ages again. You know, that's because the cost of providing that universal benefit to people in later life is enormous. And so... I, I can understand why there hasn't been a pivot to what inflation is going to be by the time these benefits do increase. And I can understand why the government might say, and look, I'm, I'll quite happily eat my hat if it it turns round and, and says, yeah, we're going to jack up benefits even higher because of this cost of living crisis. But I would understand why it would choose not to do that. Well, let's bring it back to our research on how rising costs are affecting people's finances right now. As we already mentioned, we estimate a huge 2.5 million in the UK have missed a payment, and that's on a mortgage, rent, loan, credit card or bills in January. So, Gareth, for anyone struggling to pay their bills and on the brink of missing a payment, what's your advice? You know, the payment holidays we say we saw during the pandemic say, will they be making a comeback? I don't think so to be perfectly honest with you Lucia um i know we're in this perfect storm of rising prices at the moment but i think it's unlikely that we would kind of re-energize some of those payment deferral um options that existed during the pandemic my advice is if you're struggling with your payments, speak to your providers, whether it's your mortgage, your energy, your credit card, your, your bills. You know, they have dedicated teams set up to help people who are in financial distress. And you might be able to negotiate a payment holiday with your credit card provider or your mortgage provider. It might be not as dramatic as not paying your whole mortgage for a month, but maybe you just repay the interest or you just repay the capital rather than the interest in the capital. Just go and speak to your providers. Don't bury your head in the sand. They've got teams set up. They want to help you. And if and there are debt charities out there as well who can provide you support. You know, we always talk about step change. They're fantastic help for people. And they, they have been pretty inundated with people very, very worried about how they're going to be able to pay for things. But approach the issue head on. Prioritise your payments. And where you're having problems, go and speak to that provider. And I I think also... When you're thinking about, well, what if I'm if I can't pay for everything, what should I prioritize? Your debts, so like a mortgage, a loan, a credit card. If you miss one of those payments, maybe one missed payment isn't going to have a catastrophic impact on your financial future, but a series of them are potentially, and they will stay on your credit report for six years. So if it's any payments that you're going to try and make, try and focus on those ones and then speak to your providers 
on your others. If it's your phone bill, can you negotiate a month's break, for example, and say, could you know, is this going to be reported to my credit reference agency? Not all mobile telephone providers do necessarily report to all three credit reference agencies. It's the kind of thing you should go and find out. Or your water bill, not all of them report to credit reference agencies or not all energy companies do it. And so it's having having that awareness of like the severity of different types of missed payments. And again, like independent advice, seeking independent advice from the likes of Step Change can really help you prioritise your debts so that you make sure that you're, you're paying the right ones and if there's such a thing missing the right ones as well thanks gareth now before we finish i wanted to tell you about the next few weeks here on the podcast from next thursday same place same time we'll be launching a series of episodes to help you ease the squeeze each week i'll be here with which consumer rights journalist adam french and a host of experts to bring you loads of tips tricks and advice to help you save money and tackle rising prices and next week we'll be kicking off with the energy crisis and we really want to address your questions so please send us yours to podcasts at which.co.uk UK or find us on social media at Witch Money. Thank you so much to Gareth for coming on the show today and thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Witch Money podcast. Before you head off, please do hit follow and subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening. And for more money news and advice, find us on social media at Witch Money and online at witch.co.uk forward slash money. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was produced and edited by Rob Lilly with additional support from Ian Aikman and Charlotte Gifford. Mm-hmm.